Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a three part show today. First, we're going to hear a couple of key exchanges from a Senate hearing this week that featured testimony on algorithms and amplification on social media from Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter executives. Then, Yael Eisenstadt brings us an interview with Eileen Donahoe, the executive director of the Global Digital Policy Incubator at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center, to discuss the final report of the Task Force on U.S. Strategy to Support Democracy and Counter-Authoritarianism a bipartisan group of leaders, experts, and former policymakers committed to addressing the worldwide decline in democratic freedom and the rise in authoritarianism that endangers U.S. national security. And finally, I speak with Jade Magnus Oganaki, Senior Director on the Campaigns Team at Color of Change, the nation's largest racial justice organization with more than 7 million members, about the tech policy priorities the organization published this month. Another day, another technology hearing on Capitol Hill. This week, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law, led by Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, could have pulled the title from an academic conference. Algorithms and Amplification, How Social Media Platforms Design Choices Shape Our Discourse and Our Minds. Over the course of nearly three hours of testimony, two versions of reality scrape past each other one in which the social firms have on balance improved the human condition and are making meaningful progress at dealing with the problems on their sites, and one in which there is a decade's worth of evidence of the damaging effects of social media and its business model on individuals and societies, leaving democracy in peril. Here's Senator Coons opening the hearing. Generally, when people hear the term algorithm, you might think of some very complicated mathematical formula or piece of computer code, but as many of us have become increasingly aware, algorithms impact what literally billions of people read and watch and impact what they think every day. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the three major tech companies represented in today's hearing use algorithms to determine what appears on your screen when you open and engage with their applications. There's nothing inherently wrong about that. With billions or even trillions of pieces of content to choose from on each platform, it makes sense that they should have a way to help us sift through what they think their users are looking for and what we're actually seeking. 
Advances in machine learning that made this technology possible have led to enormous good in other contexts. Machine learning has driven innovation across many industries, from medical science to public transportation, and has allowed companies to deliver better services. But many have also recently argued this advanced technology is harnessed into algorithms designed to attract our time and attention on social media, and the results can be harmful to our kids' attention spans, to the quality of our public discourse, to our public health, and even to our democracy itself. What happens when algorithms become so good at amplification, at showing you content that a computer thinks you'll like, that you or your kids or family members end up spending hours each day engaged, staring at the screen? What happens when algorithms become so hyper-tailored to you and your habits and interests that you stop being exposed to ideas you might find disagreeable or even so different from you, yours as to be offensive? What happens when they amplify content that might be very popular but is also hateful or just plain false? As I noted, Ranking Member Sass and I worked on this hearing and one of the main reasons for that is because we truly don't see these as partisan questions and don't come to this hearing with a specific regulatory or legislative agenda. But this is an area that requires urgent attention. As Mark Zuckerberg himself recently put it, and I quote, when left unchecked, people will engage disproportionately with sensationalist and provocative content, which can undermine the quality of public discourse and lead to civic polarization. And if we're so polarized and angry, we can no longer hear each other's points of view, then our democracy itself suffers. About an hour into the hearing, Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, paused to try to force a constructive collision between these two realities, represented on the one side by technology executives, including Facebook Vice President for Content Policy Monica Bickert, Twitter Head of U.S. Public Policy Lauren Culbertson, and YouTube Government Affairs and Public Policy Director Alexander Veach, and the other by Harvard Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Policy Research Director Dr. Joan Donovan and Center for Humane Technology President Tristan Harris. Referring to statements by Harris, Senator Sass wanted the platforms to address the fundamental charge that is levied against them, that their business models are responsible for the externalities they produce. Here's Sass, followed by the responses of the tech executives. I, I really do think that constructive engagement in these committees is better than people uh, trolling for sound bites. So I'm, I'm not trying to get you all to fight, but um, the truth of the matter is this hearing would work a lot better if we were in the same room, so we didn't have to try to bring you all into dialogue. But the last three answers from the social media companies and Mr. Harris's answers are just ultimately not reconcilable, I don't think. And so I, I want to go back to, uh, I'll, I'll start with... Um, Ms. Bickert as well. Um, but saying that you aspire to healthy engagement as opposed to just more quantity, I, I agree with Mr. Harris's line that you definitely aspire to skim the most destructive habits and practices off the top of digital addiction. But the business model is addiction, right? I mean, money is directly correlated to the amount of time that people spend on the site. So I guess what would be useful for me is to hear each of the three of you um, say what you think is wrong with Mr. Harris's argument. Because right now I think we're, we're talking past each other and I know that there is bad content and there's disinformation content that you all, well-intentioned as your companies surely are, want to curtail. But his argument is really more broadly about the business model and the business model is addiction, isn't it? Um, Ms. Bicker, can we start with you? What, what's, what is Mr. Harris missing? Senator, thanks for the question. 
Um, you know, I'll say I'll say two things that I hope will be helpful. Um, one is for us, the focus is always on the long term, and I'll give one concrete example of that. In January of 2018, we put out a, a, a post announcing that we were going to be prioritizing content from family and friends over, say, news content. It was called Meaningful Social Interactions. We suspected that it would lead to less time spent on the service, and it did. It led to, to people spending tens of millions um, of fewer hours on Facebook every day. But that was something that we did because we thought that longer term, it was more important for people to see that sort of content because they would find it meaningful and they would want to continue to use the site. So it's not, it's, it's a long-term picture. And the other thing I would say is the teams that I work with who include the engineers who are uh, focused on safety issues, removing content, say bullying content or hate speech, and the engineers who are focused on um, uh, the way that we reduce, for instance, misinformation that's been labeled on the site. A key statistic for those engineers is prevalence, violating content, that's their goal. And we put out public reports on their prevalence. And so, uh, you know, that that's an example of how we are focused on the long term and making sure that we are stopping abuse and maintaining a healthy environment. Um, I, I, I want to be clear that I'm not I'm not targeting the three of you because I my my opening statement is very sincere. I think that there is a, a danger in politics in in governance where if you agree that there's a problem, then there must be a a definitive regulatory solution that can come real fast and easy. And on the other hand, if you're not persuaded there's a regulatory fix right away, then you have to deny there's a problem. I'm, I'm sort of a heterodox tweener on this in that I don't have clarity about the, what the regulatory fixes would be, but I think society-wide we should admit that, admit that there is a problem in the last 12, 14 years as we've consumed more and more digital stuff that seems to be correlated with some benefits, but also some very real costs. And I don't think it's just your companies. I mean, there have been reports out of the New York Times um, about their own internal deliberations about how they'd like to have more of Americans engaging healthy content and they're just printing money right now uh, over the course of the last four or five years. But engagement is much higher when they're angry. And so when, when the content is angry, it leads to more engagement. And I, I don't think any of you are really going to dispute that. Um, but I'd like to stay where, I, where the question was uh, two minutes ago, which is I'd, I'd love it if uh, Ms. Colbertson, will you tell me what you think is wrong with Mr. Harris's argument? We're really focused on serving the public conversation, and that includes having um, controls in place so people can also control their experience. But I, I think as we're talking about algorithms today, you know, Twitter really does one thing. We do tweets. We have a home timeline. And as we're talking about algorithms, we have a ranking algorithm that's designed to show you what might be most relevant to you. That also, if we're talking about screen time or how much time you spend on a service, I think that's really relevant because I know as a user of Twitter myself, I rely on that so I can kind of see what happened in the day, what people are talking about, and then I kind of log off, move on with my day. Um, so I think it's important to look at this um, in a nuanced view and recognize that algorithms can also be helpful in terms of cutting down on screen time or providing a more valuable experience for people. Sure, but it, it, the reality is the loop between the products that are being produced and the way as we as narcissistic sinners consume it is, maybe I'll ask it as a direct question, is it or is it not true that when somebody tweets something that's really anger invoking and outrageous and it goes viral, 
but then two hours later they realize they were wrong and they correct it, isn't the correction usually like 3% of the traffic of the original outrageous but false thing? I mean, so it, it, it seems to me that what we know is that people are pretty good at short-term rage and the product capitalizes on that, doesn't it? Well, I think when looking at Twitter, um, it's important to remember that it's an open uh, public conversation. And so everything that happens is in the open in the public. And and typically, you know, you'll see these debates play out. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that connection and connectivity is key to solving problems. And that's what our service does. Of course, people have robust and spirited debates. Um, but but I, I think you have to look at the greater picture there. Um, we are basically at time, so I won't indulge the, get the chairman to indulge me much longer. But Ms. Veach, do you have anything to say that you think Mr. Harris is wrong about? It would be useful, um, but right now we're not getting much direct engagement with that. He's making a big argument, and I think we're hearing responses that are only around the margins. Ms. Veach, do you have any criticism yeah, of Mr. Harris's argument? I think in your opening statement, you called these nettlesome problems. I agree, they are. I, I would just make two quick points. First, uh, misinformation is not in our interest. Uh, our business relies on the trust of our users, but also our advertisers who on our platform advertise on single pieces of content. Uh, we wanna build these relationships for the long term. That's why uh, we bake user choice, user control right into the product with things like timers and the opportunity to turn autoplay off, uh, take a break reminders of which we've sent over a billion. Uh, again, those exist so we can uh, build this re relationship with our users for the long term. Throughout the hearing, a litany of other concerns were raised. The problem of Facebook's discriminatory advertising practices, on which Bickert said the company has, quote, made a number of improvements, unquote. The problem of disinformation related to COVID-19. The problem of children's exposure to problematic content on YouTube and the collection of data on children in violation of COPPA, which Veach dismissed as the result of a novel interpretation of the law. The problem of political disinformation inciting violence. Indeed, Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, queried Facebook's Bickert about measures the platform takes to reduce hate, division, and violence. Here's Blumenthal. We know that the tech platforms play a role in hate crimes and hate speech online and off. The Anti-Defamation League recently found that as many as one in three Americans experience hate crimes and harassment online. Following the ADL's concern, very concerning findings, I teamed up with Representative Raskin to request a Government Accountability Office study specifically on the prevalence of online hate crimes and hate speech in the United States. During the 2020 election, Facebook spoke about the break the glass measures it was taking to, in quotes, dial down the hate incitements to violence and misinformation on its platform. Last week, uh, Ms. Bickert, you wrote a blog post about turning the dial down on hate speech, graphic violence, violence and incitement as the country was anticipating the verdict in the Chauvin trial. Uh, if Facebook does in fact have a dial for hateful content, can the company dial it down now? Why doesn't it dial it down already? And uh, to all of the 
representatives uh, who are here today from YouTube, Twitter, as well as Facebook, can you commit to providing access data to independent researchers to help us better understand and address the scourge of hate and harassment online? Senator, thank you. And let me start by saying I completely agree that uh, the rise of hate speech and hate crimes is very concerning and needs to be a priority for us and is a priority for us. And I'll just point to, to one quick example, which is we've started publishing the prevalence in our quarterly reports that we put out, our community standards enforcement reports, we now publish the prevalence of hate speech, which means we go through with a fine tooth comb and see what we missed for a significant, statistically significant subset of content. And the prevalence of hate speech on our service is very low, less than a tenth of 1%, uh, but it's something that we're really focused on finding. And now I'm happy to say that more than 95% of the content that we remove for hate speech violations, we find ourselves before anybody reports it to us. So we are making strides. But to respond to your point about uh, why we don't, the, the measures we took around the Chauvin trial um, and the election, why we don't always do that. Let me, let me sort of give you an example of the costs of those measures, because they have benefits, but they have costs. In the, in the run up to um, uh, the election, for instance, we uh, took some very aggressive measures to reduce the distribution of content that might be violating our policies. We did that with the Chauvin trial as well. Those, the, those measures aren't perfect. And so there will be content that actually doesn't violate our policies that was flagged by our technology that, that really shouldn't be reduced. And so when we take those measures, we're mindful of the cost. It's always this balance between trying to, to stop abuse and trying to make sure that we're providing uh, space for freedom of expression and being very fair. And so we take those measures where there's a risk of false positives only when there is an additional risk of abuse. Thank you. We learn in that response that Facebook cannot engineer a system that prevents violence without reducing free expression. This is precisely the dilemma an internal report made public by BuzzFeed News said resulted in Facebook's failure to take action to curb the growth of the network that contributed to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in January. The report said the company lacks the policies and tools to make the determinations necessary to stop such phenomena, and where it can do so, the interventions are often manual. Dr. Joan Donovan wrote in her opening statement that, quote, cobbled together across products, our new media ecosystem is the network terrain for a hybrid information war that ultimately enables dangerous groups to organize violent events like the nationalists, militias, white supremacists, conspiracists, anti-vaccination groups, and others who collaborated under the banner of Stop the Steal in order to breach the Capitol, unquote. But to listen to the representatives of Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter who testified last week, the behavior of such groups and their platforms is statistically insignificant in comparison to the rich dialogue, entertaining videos, and meaningful connections we all maintain on social media. If this hearing did anything to advance the dialogue, it may simply be that it proves Senator Sass's point. The positions of the big tech companies and their critics are indeed irreconcilable. That puts the focus on lawmakers, whose duty it is to reconcile the interests of society and democracy with the business interests of the platforms. Just as Facebook must do a cost-benefit analysis when it decides to what extent it should reduce free expression on its platform to reduce potential violence, 
lawmakers must decide how to sum this gnarly equation. But one thing seems clear, as Dr. Donovan put it in the final words of her opening statement. We didn't build airports overnight, but tech companies are flying the plane with nowhere to land at this point. And of course, the cost of doing nothing is nothing short of democracy's end. Thank you. Don't we have fun, huh? Wind and tails, dear. Come in pairs, dear. Don't we have fun, huh? We've only started at Mummer and Pop. Are we downhearted? I'll say that we're not, no. Landlord mad and getting madder. Ain't we got fun, huh? Times are bad and getting better. Still we have fun. There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and the poor get laid off. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Every morning, every evening, ain't we got fun, huh? Not much money all, but honey, ain't we got fun, huh? The rent's unpaid, dear, we haven't a buck. But smiles were made, dear, for people like us in the winter. Next up, we'll learn about the final report of the Task Force on U.S. Strategy to Support Democracy and Counter-Authoritarianism, a bipartisan group of leaders, experts, and former policymakers committed to addressing the worldwide decline in democratic freedom and the rise in authoritarianism that endangers U.S. national security. The task force was convened by Freedom House, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and the McCain Institute. Gail Eisenstadt is a Future of Democracy fellow at the Berguin Institute and a researcher in residence at Beta Lab. She interviews Eileen Donahoe, the executive director of the Global Digital Policy Incubator at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center and a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva during the Obama-Biden administration and a former director of Global Affairs at Human Rights Watch. Here's Yael. So we're here to discuss this report called Reversing the Tide Towards a New U.S. Strategy to Support Democracy and Counter-Authoritarianism. Throughout the report, which you were involved with, there's really two main ideas that I pulled out, which the report is built on, which is one, that authoritarianism has been on the rise and democracy is eroding and that this, of course, presents a real threat to our national security And two, that the United States and its democratic allies haven't really addressed the strategic challenge posed by democratic decay and what you're calling a resurgent authoritarianism. Now, for the purpose of this conversation, since this is tech policy press, I really want to focus on two of the seven strategies and recommendations from your report that really relate to technology. So I'll just quickly mention those two strategies and then dive right in. Strategy number four was uh, to lead in developing a strategic digital technology policy agenda for the democratic world. And strategy number five was to develop a strategy to rebuild trust in the information environment and to counter the spread of disinformation, online hate, and harassment. So my first question to you, Eileen, is that to date, you know, much of the technology conversations in government in particular We've really focused on cybersecurity and technology competition, but this idea that technology has a fundamental role in the outcomes of democracy in and of itself is relatively new. So how did you all as a group really land on these two technology-related strategies? 
I am so glad you asked that question because that really goes to the heart of what we were trying to do here. And you are absolutely right. Most people's minds, when you talk about technology and democracy, they they go to either the traditional cyber security type threats um, or they go to the economic competition. And what we were trying to do is to link the challenges associated with technology directly with that larger threat and our real mission, which is how do we address the democratic recession around the world and the rise of authoritarianism? And what's the role of technology in that? And I will add um, from my vantage point, even though we we were one of five working groups and we became two of seven strategies that will ultimately were put into the report as practical recommendations for the US and in particular, the Biden administration. From my vantage point, technology is the universe in which we are operating. And it is the, it's the entire context in which democratic government must be practiced. And so what we were trying to do very intentionally is make much more visible to policymakers the extent to which the digital transformation of society, digitization of everything, has so dramatically altered the context for governance, and to look more seriously at how it's challenging the basic obligation of governments to protect the liberty and security of citizens. Um, you know, tech has infiltrated everything. Digitization has infiltrated everything. And we know there are many benefits, but those of us who want to be optimistic about the potential for technology in the society going forward, I feel like our job is to look at the downside risks and handle them. And democratic governments really have not done a good job at that. We're essentially failing at addressing not just cyber security, traditional vulnerabilities, but all of the the threats to liberty and security that come with digitization. And so you hit it that, you know, we were, that's what we were trying to do, make this bigger picture much more visible. And last point here, I will say is to us, there were really two big parts of this equation. One is how are democratic governments themselves failing to live up to their own ideals and adhere to their values in this digitized context. And then the other half is, how is digital technology facilitating the rise of digital authoritarianism? We sort of addressed both of those sides of the equation. So I hope that our listeners will actually delve into the report because there's a lot of really good content there. I, I just picked out a few things out of the report that I would love to get your thoughts and expand a bit more from what was in the report. I am going to read a direct two sentences because I find they were really strong. In the report, you say democracies must recognize that we are in a geopolitical battle over the digital governance model that will dominate the 21st century. This presents an existential threat, not just to U.S. economic and national security, but also to our values-based vision for the Internet and an open democratic digital society. This is a really bold statement. Using the word existential threat is always bold. And, you know, some would argue that a splinter net is not necessarily a bad thing. But as I'm reading your report, it seems you're arguing for why that would be a threat to our future as a democracy. I would love you to elaborate a bit on this point. 
I'm going to start with the what I, what we hoped to make really visible, which is that digital technology is absolutely facilitating the spread of authoritarianism. And so we we go that that means that, you know at the height of the internet freedom movement, we were all incredibly naive, thinking technology would be inherently liberatory, and that has not turned out to be the case. And we thought authoritarian governments would never be able to catch up with civil society actors, et cetera, when, when they had access to technology. Now, what we observe instead is that technology is the primary means through which authoritarians are controlling citizens at home, repressing them, surveilling, censoring. They're exporting these technologies uh, abroad and spreading those capacities for repression. They are additionally exporting information infrastructure through which they will gain leverage over societies for decades to come. And last but not least, they are really ramping up their global diplomacy and trying to reshape the norms of 21st century digital society. And so for us, the move towards cyber sovereignty by authoritarians has sort of two key pieces to it. One is the normative piece, and it it, it really is a restatement of a very old idea, uh, which is that governments are sovereign and what happens within their borders is their own business. And external parties should no longer be able to utilize a human rights basis for critiquing what we do within our cyber borders. And that is the idea we are really resisting. And part of the authoritarian narrative is about the irrelevance of the international human rights framework and the idea that it's no longer feasible to adhere to human rights principles in a digitized context. And along with that, what we've seen on the on the democratic side of the equation, we've seen a loss of confidence in also in the feasibility of adhering to democratic values and international human rights principles. And so we're trying to say we have a framework of global norms. Uh, there are many reasons that it is very well suited to a global environment. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it is internationally recognized status of international law negotiated through multilateral, multi-stakeholder processes, um, speaks to virtually all of the threats associated with di- digital technologies. And our problem is not that we don't have global norms or fr- a global framework. What we don't have is an understanding of how to apply and adhere to those norms in this radically changed context. And so that was one of our top line ideas, hold on to this framework, but do the hard work of re-articulating those global norms. Let me get to your, you know, you, you, you quoted us and, but you also raised the splinter net concept. To my ears, Cyber sovereignty and splinter nets are not exactly the same thing. I hear splinter net as primarily a description of what's going on globally around the world in terms of all kinds of governments asserting sovereignty, attempting to 
um, regulate in some way something that's happening on the internet or in the digital realm. And that's a descriptive term. And some of those regulations are very well-intentioned and intended to protect citizens, human rights, free expression, privacy, et cetera. And others are less so. Others are much more moving in an authoritarian realm. So I consider splinternet as a descriptive thing, not exactly the same as assertion of a new norm of cyber sovereignty. I will also mention another concept that I'm sure you are well aware of, but didn't mention, is this idea of digital sovereignty, which has been asserted a little bit more in Europe by European governments. And then there are many people in civil society talking about the digital sovereignty of citizens. And I am a, I, I would love to see that concept much more fully developed and to have technologies and innovation that actually do support the digital sovereignty of citizens. But to, to my ears, that is quite a different move than what China in particular is trying to do with the concept of cyber sovereignty. There is so much we could unpack there. It just is so fascinating. Um, I want to actually draw out a little bit more about this sort of international human rights principles. So, you know, your report has a strong focus on the importance of international human rights law and principles, uh, particularly in the digital context. Some argue, and, and I am one of those people, who argues that it's actually American tech companies that have helped facilitate the major human rights violations and tragedies. I mean, the big example would be Facebook and Myanmar. So I'm curious, how do you see the U.S. role in both reconciling this fact, but in also being a leader in pushing for a human rights framework with our democratic partners? So for me, there's there really isn't a tension there. And in fact, the U.S., if you're talking about the U.S. government and what it should be doing about American tech companies and how they may be facilitating human rights violations around the world, the answer is go directly to the international human rights law framework. So the founding documents, the International Bill of Rights, the core of which in this regard is the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights, the ICCPR, basically understands that the, the primary obligation under international law to protect human rights rests with governments. And what that means is they themselves have to be careful not to violate through their own use of data, use of technology, and their regulation of data and technology. They should not be harming human rights, and they should be thinking, you know, doing human rights impact assessments of what they themselves do. But they do have an obligation to regulate private sector entities that may be harming citizens at home or abroad. And so that's understood to be the obligation of government. In addition to that is the, the responsibility of the tech companies themselves. And so in 2011, uh, this is a much more recent development and you know, almost can be considered a governance innovation within the international human rights framework itself, is the guiding principles on business and human rights. And there, the idea is that 
private sector entities themselves, they don't have an obligation like governments to protect citizens, but they have a responsibility to respect human rights in their own activities, in their through, you know, think about the impact of their own products and services, do due diligence processes to make sure that in the design, the deployment, development, you know, and even after the fact, uh, you know, use of their technologies that human rights are not be, being negatively impacted, and then to remedy those violations. And so from my vantage point, the framework speaks very well to the responsibility of tech companies and to the responsibility of governments, including the United States, to think about the and regulate the impact of tech companies as it relates to human rights. So that leads me to really think about our government's capabilities. Do you think that, let's look and you know, we're both in the U.S. Do you think the U.S. government is equipped to take on some of these recommendations? And I'm curious, if not, what can we do to strengthen our government's capabilities to appropriately manage the technology portions of your report and your strategies and recommendations? So two parts to my answer there. I, I have deep confidence that the current administration at the highest level, the president himself, the secretary of state, the national security advisor, and the people that they have appointed and they're relying upon, they get this challenge. They have an organic feel for the link between uh, democratic values and our national security. And they understand that promotion of democracy and human rights are, are uh, strategic priorities. And that is a really, obviously, it's a 180 from the last administration. And it's even, I would say, a further enhancement of any version of that idea that we've ever had in American history in any previous administration. So, and I think part of the reason for that, I mean, the move away from sort of the real politic kind of approach to foreign policy comes from the fact that American, the perception of the United States has deteriorated around the world. And that we have left a vacuum of leadership and the consequences for our own national security and economic security and the security of citizens is dramatic. And so they, they are understanding now that the normative dimensions of technology policy and just U.S. values and democratic values are really important to the long-term security. So, so that part, I have deep confidence. Um, and obviously, there's going to be this summit for democracy. And I believe that the technology agenda is likely to be a very big piece of that summit. On the more, you know, the part of this situation at home that is about which I feel much less optimistic is obviously the regulatory front, which has to happen in the Congress. And there, I would say we are so politically divided and our understanding of so many of our core values, such as free expression and what that entails, is so confused and contested and convoluted that the likelihood that we will really be able to have congressional constructive movement on these fronts, I am less sanguine about that. 
but at least the topics have been raised and people are putting proposals forward. That actually takes me to, I've got one more question for you, and then I think we'll wrap up from there. And again, just recommend that everybody read this report is now zooming out to like-minded democracies. I was really interested to see in the report that there was a focus on some of the current rifts between the U.S. and the European Union on our approaches to data, on why those rifts are concerning. So I'm curious, do you think the U.S. and Europe will be able to find common ground on data issues? What are what are some of your key concerns or recommendations in that area? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, um, because, you know, our top line idea here is we, we want the U.S. to reassert leadership with our Democratic allies and really rally the Democratic world around this shared vision. And our our sense is if we can't heal the tech policy rift with Europe, it is very unlikely we are going to be galvanizing the rest of the world around a vision. You know, I acknowledge, and and here's the, again, I'm, you know, it's obvious, I'm an advocate for the international human rights framework. We have the global norms, Europe shares them, the United States shares them, our democratic allies share them. That framework has never required homogeneity in how those values are made manifest in domestic regulation or law. It does provide a bottom line and a shared basis and a a shared articulation of what the values are, like the idea of protecting free expression, access to information, privacy, et cetera. And the reality is a lot of those rights actually are in tension with each other in the digital context. And so figuring out what is the right way to hold these competing interests in the digital context is the shared project, but we don't need to have homogeneous laws. We need harmonious and legally interoperable approaches. And the task is to real, I I think no, no governments, there isn't a single democratic government on the planet today that has done the hard work of really thinking through how to apply the whole framework to which they've committed and really sorting out these tough challenges, particularly things like the tension between privacy and free expression. And last point there and the practical realm and how likely are is the US and Europe gonna be able to reconcile these tensions. The, the first move there I think has to be a much deeper conversation about the breakdown of the privacy shield arrangement and why that happened. I mean, the European Court of Justice struck down that arrangement, which was negotiated at the end of the Obama administration um, on fundamental rights grounds. And what's really interesting, you know, just a basic sense that the fundamental right to privacy of citizens in the EU could not be adequately protected under this arrangement. And the, the interesting point there is that it is largely it's not so much about what the private sector is doing themselves in that instance. It's about the fact that the U.S. government might have access to the data of private sector companies that are American. And so that's really about, again, it's what governments themselves do and what restraint, institutional restraint Democratic governments must be putting on themselves when it comes to use and regulation 
of data and technology, and then you know the corresponding responsibility of the private sector to respect human rights. So I, I do think it's definitely possible. And here's the last point. Why, why do I have some optimism about this? I do believe that our allies and our government, the US government and our European partners will come to a shared understanding of that existential threat. Not only is the model of digital authoritarian spreading around the world, China's global influence is obviously rising in every possible realm. And I do believe that that fact will motivate uh, allies to come together because we face this shared threat and it is to our normative vision. It's not just our economic well-being. It's you know, it's not just sort of military security, it, although it's all of the above when it comes to technology. One of these ideas we talked about is that technology is now the source of all kinds of all forms of power. Uh, and China understands this very well. They have massively invested in technology. It's economic power, military power, geopolitical influence, and it normative influence. And I think that is the existential threat if you care about human rights and you care about democracy as a form of government. And I think that that threat is what will bring democratic allies together and help us heal this transatlantic rift. Well, I can't argue with ending the interview on a note of optimism. Um, you know, sometimes we get so bogged down in tech policy conversations on, you know, the details of how this algorithm works or that work, which is all super important, but rising this to the level of how global democracies and like-minded countries will all come together to tackle some of this is a really interesting perspective. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And again, I hope our listeners will look up the report and read it in more detail. Thanks very much, Eileen. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Last up, I talk with Jade Magnus Oginaki, Senior Director on the Campaigns Team at Color of Change, about the tech policy priorities the organization published this month. Here's Jade. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Jade Magnus Oginaki. I'm a Senior Director on the Campaigns Team at Color of Change, the nation's largest racial justice organization with more than 7 million members. Color of Change has been advocating now on tech issues uh, fairly prominently over the last two years. Uh, why has tech become such a major concern for the organization? Social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, business interfaces like Google, Gmail, um, they've become our town squares. They've become our uh, meeting places, our festivals, especially during COVID. You know, we saw more than ever social events and uh, community being built via the internet. Um, and because of that, some of the same problems and systemic racism that pop up in real life are popping up on the internet in those spaces as well. Uh, I think above anything, we see these tech corporations as corporations, businesses that need to properly uh, regulate themselves, considering all of the sort of civil rights abuses that happen on them daily. 
And so is your, is your membership you know, particularly keen on these issues? Do you find that they respond to uh, the tech issues, particularly uh, given all the things that you're advocating for? Yes. I mean, Color of Change is an organization that runs campaigns on everything from economic justice to climate justice to criminal justice. I think tech is one of those spaces that at first can be a little bit challenging to access or understand. I think there's a great swath of us in this world who, uh, due to gender bias, due to, you know, uh, racial bias, when we hear tech, our brains sort of just shut off. That's like someone like me. Before I worked at Color of Change, I never thought issues of tech were for me or related to me in any way. It's really been through this work that I sort of developed a politic around why this work is so important. You know, one of our top performing mailers last year uh, was all about Kyle Rittenhouse, how he shot and killed three people at a protest. And the most important thing in that story was the way Facebook had enabled that. Kyle Rittenhouse and his friends had had planned to go on Facebook. Their posts had been flagged multiple times and Facebook had refused to take down the post um, and the event listings. So that's sort of how you see how tech companies like Facebook can enable um, hate, racism, and actually real world violence. I count seven different priorities that are in this document you put out, 2021 Tech Accountability Priorities. Um, and number one is is breaking up the monopolies. So uh, Color of Change is getting in the antitrust business. Uh, what's your concern with the, the kind of monopoly power of these tech companies? I mean, they're not going to do it themselves, right? You know, Color of Change has been, you know, leading the drumbeat on, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter sort of like regulating themselves. Hey, put in civil rights infrastructure. Hey, pay your content moderators a living wage, you know, on, on sort of every level of these companies. There is systemic, uh, I want to, I want to stop using the word racism. So I'm going to say inequity, you know, you look at a company like Google, they're touted as a great place to work, incredible benefits, the best food, the best childcare leave policy. And yet, you know, the people that work in the cafeteria and the security guards that keep the campus safe don't even have access to those benefits. So, you know, we really see that federal regulation is really the only solution to sort of rein in the outsized power of big tech. It's really the only way forward. These companies do not have responsibility to us. And, you know, what we've seen is that they will only make moves and make big changes uh, with incredible grassroots pressure so far. Uh, What we really need is for the Biden administration to break them up. So you've got two priorities around uh, internet access, one on net neutrality and and closing the digital divide. I mean, clearly these are uh, huge problem areas, especially in the time of, of COVID. But how do these two, I guess, particularly affect Black communities? Well, we know that the digital divide is highly concentrated in, in low-income communities and Black communities are more likely to be low income. Uh, What we see is that, you know, these telecom companies, these tech companies, they're operating with broken business models. Above all, they're going to prioritize profit. During COVID, for the first time pretty much ever, we saw children in public school um, have access to hotspots and have access to computers um, because that was the only way that they could continue their education. It's made a huge difference. You know, having uh, internet in your home is the same as having a phone line was when I was younger. If you didn't have a phone line, you couldn't access most things in the community. Low-income communities and Black communities are greatly impacted by not having access to broadband. Let's spend just a minute on the next two. Uh, One is protecting privacy, preventing algorithmic uh, discrimination. And then you also get into disinformation and prioritizing uh, content moderation. I sort of see these these things as as connected, of course. Tell me a little bit about 
your thinking around content moderation specifically. Uh, you you make make some mention here of Section two hundred and thirty reform, um, how you might like to see that unfold, and what the uh, exemptions should be around that, particularly to do with civil rights violations. Um, and th- you know, there's some other stipulations here. What are you thinking about with regard to disinformation and content moderation? We saw disinformation become subject of national conversation. I think post 2016 election, um, after Donald Trump was elected, all of a sudden there was this sort of hyper focus on the fake news uh, that circulated on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Um, when you hear that uh, the most popular article in 2016 was that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump with no sort of fact checking, you sort of see the real world's uh, implications of disinfo. Um, and we've seen it spread beyond presidential elections over the past four years. I mean, for me, the most important thing that I'm really seeing is what happened during COVID. Uh, There was a time uh, in March of 2020 when COVID first hit that there was disinformation around how herbs could prevent you from getting COVID-19, how Black people didn't get COVID-19. And then we saw that Black people were the most impacted uh, by coronavirus. You know, we were more likely to die, more likely to be hospitalized, and more likely to contract the coronavirus. Because of, you know, people getting their information online, you know, when I was growing up, we had newspapers and we had the evening news, not that they didn't have their bias, but they definitely went through a fact checking process. People are interacting with social media that same way, too. They believe that if it's written down and it's on a professional looking website, that it's true and that it's real. And the problem is that it's having, you know, horrific real world implications. We're seeing that with the vaccine. Color of Change released a Black Patient's Guide to COVID-19 this April on World Health Day on April 7th, um, because what we were seeing were people saying that the vaccine would make you grow an extra arm or that would cause you to miscarry or get cancer. The goal of disinformation is to get people to no longer trust in institutions. As Black people, we totally understand why people don't trust in institutions. Um, However, as a functioning community, as a functioning country, we have nothing if we don't have institutions and organizations that we can trust. Uh, disinfo is a violent threat to our health as a health as a society to be honest let's talk a little bit about biometric surveillance you've got uh, a set of kind of concerns here around a moratorium on facial recognition that one is sort of promoting a particular bill yeah i mean what we see with facial recognition is that flat out it doesn't work um, uh, there have been so many cases. The one that's coming to my mind is something that happened in Detroit a couple of years ago. Um, a father was hanging out with his daughter. A black father was hanging out with his daughter on the lawn of his home and was arrested because his face had, you know, supposedly facial recognition had recognized him from robbing a, a diamond store uh, earlier in that day. Obviously, that wasn't true. The police, though, didn't ask questions. They arrested him and took him down to the station. It was a horrific and traumatizing experience for his daughter. And something that's happening large scale all across this country. You know, I live in New York. I live in Harlem. I can't walk down the street without being on a um, hundred cameras. You know, someone is 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 taping me at all times a day. And the problem with that is that it's not like it's uh, a centralized regulated authority that's that's keeping track of this and we know what's happening with the data. 
private businesses, uh, the police who we know do not have Black people's interests at heart are filming all of us all day. Um, and it has to end. Uh, biometric facial surveillance is, is truly a, a violation to all of our privacy. And I think, like I said earlier, the most important thing that we know is that it just doesn't work. So let's just stop doing it. It's fake science. You know, I guess anything else that you'd want to emphasize about, about Color of Change's accountability priorities for the year ahead? Yeah, you know, I think the most important thing to share is that above all, these tech companies are often viewed as progressive. They're viewed as uh, free and Californian um, and the next step in our world, right? You know, these companies are going to solve all the world's ills and technology will. The truth is that they are corporations at the end of the day. Um, they have the same uh, priorities, which is uh valuing profit over the health of all of us. Um, and it's important that we view them as that and not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, hippie communes because they have foosball tables and long maternity leave. Uh, these corporations must be regulated. It's incredibly important that the Biden administration regulate uh, these corporations and break up Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Thank you, Jade. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.